0: Uh, yeah, so we're continuing our series in Isaiah. We've been uh, a couple weeks now, walking through this portion of the book of Isaiah. I say, I say Isaiah, you say Isaiah, potato potato, right? Um, so, I, you know, as I as I adjust, last time I preached, I think I said Isaiah every time. I might throw an Isaiah in there this time, you know, just for good measure. We'll we'll see if it happens, um, but. Um, But yeah, so today we're going to be looking at the third of what uh, are four songs that we see in the book of Isaiah. Uh, This we'll touch on the third one today, and this um, this one is uh, interesting. So um, it's uh, it's good. Let me uh, let me pray. God, we are uh, we're grateful for your word, and we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear and to learn who you are and who we are because of who you are. And God, today, would you give us ears to hear, give us hearts uh, to learn and to grow and to be more like your son, Jesus, as we take a look today at at an Old Testament picture of you, our Messiah, Jesus. We're grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... uh, I'm not sure I've ever actually done the clicker while I preached. So, while I preached, so I may forget like halfway through. Just, just keep going. Don't, don't interrupt me. It'll throw me off too much. Right? Actually, that's not true. You're welcome to point if you just point. I'll know what that means. Um, so a few of you know that uh, Tara and I have been traveling a little bit and getting to see a few different places. I got to go see Spain this week. She did not get to go. Uh, she was jealous. Yes, yeah, she's very. She's still. <laughs> Still a little upset about it, but, um, but a few weeks ago we went to Scotland and we visited some friends that we've known for like 20 years. And while we were there, they um, we were reminiscing, as you do with old friends, and they distinctly remember uh, the story of our cheeky two-year-old, uh, well, when she was two, she's 22 now, uh, but they remember, uh, and we do as well a time when our little two-year-old had gone to bed and we had our friends TJ and Dina over uh, for whatever. We probably had eaten dinner with them and we were hanging out, watching a movie, playing a game, doing something. And so uh, our kids were in bed, our little baby Olivia and our two-year-old. And so in the midst of us having fun, we hear Grace at the top of the stairs. She knew better than to come downstairs. Uh, We had been uh, training her to stay in bed And so she's standing at the top of the stairs trying to speak to us, and eventually our tactic became to ignore her. And so that didn't really work out too well. And so eventually she stood at the top of the stairs and yelled down at us very loudly, I'm trying to ask you a question, but you're not listening. And she just kept saying it and saying it. And TJ and Dina just laughed and cackled because Of course, Grace is 22 now, and I think they really enjoy telling Grace that story. Um, But uh, kids ask some silly questions sometimes, right? Especially when they're trying to stall and stay up later or whatever, uh, or figure out what mom and dad are doing that's so fun downstairs. They ask crazy questions. Um, I don't know if you've experienced this, if you've been around too many kids. uh, This same cheeky two-year-old at some point in her life, uh, maybe when she (laughs) was a little older, asked uh, questions like this. In the olden days, was everything black and white? Right? She, she thought maybe at one point I was black and white. Um, this same American kid, by the way, this one's kind of American, but I think you'll catch on. She asked the question, she said, Dad, if pro is the opposite of con, does that mean Congress is the opposite of progress? <laughs> and I'm thinking, how in the world does a sick-year-old have such a poignant question to ask Uh, One of my other children that you do know, who's in the other room, she asked me uh, a few months ago, Dad, what language will we speak in heaven? I thought that's a great question. I have no clue. I'm sure we'll understand each other perfectly, but I don't know what language we'll be speaking. Um, And so today we're going to be actually looking at God asking some questions of us. And I think it's interesting. I've always been fascinated by the questions that God asks in Scripture because whether it's a child or an adult, most of the time when we ask questions, we're trying to learn something. But God isn't trying to learn anything. When God asks questions, it's always for our sake. God's questions are always rhetorical because He wants us to think. He wants us to think about the answer. And so we're going to look today in our passage um, at the Israelites and uh, through the Israelites. God asks us today, I believe, some questions. He's asking them questions in this passage, but I believe they apply uh, to us as we go through uh, our passage today. So, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Look at that. Oh, you don't get to see that yet. So, verses 1 and 2. And by the way, keep those notebooks out. Bibles, if you need a Bible, there's one right back there. I think there's some of our Isaiah notebooks that have the scripture in it over there. Feel free to like literally get up while I'm talking. There's just, we're just a family here today. So grab that um, and follow along because I will be walking through uh, the entire chapter today. Verses one and two. It says, this is what the Lord says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Then in the next verse, he says, When I came, why was there no one? When I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to deliver you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? In these questions, uh, what we see is the Israelites were beginning to really question God's um, love for them, basically, right? They were feeling abandoned. Uh, and, and really, The crazy thing is, not just in the setting they were in, but God knew that there was a setting coming where they were going to be going into exile and they were going to be even more feeling this idea of abandonment. Hey, God, where are you? And I'll raise my hand and say, there have been many times in my life as a believer where I've asked the question, God, where are you right now? Like, I don't see you in this situation. I don't feel your presence here. And it can certainly feel... You can feel helpless in those times. But what Israel was refusing to see, that God makes very clear in this passage, after his first set of questions about where's this certificate of divorce or to which of my creditors did I sell you, he says very clearly, it's because of your sin that you were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. And he makes it uh, utterly clear that he did not, Abandoned them. They had abandoned him. He says, Did I divorce you? Right? Like he's he's saying, like, did I put into motion this situation where I'm going to leave you and abandon you? And and the answer is, of course, not. No. The answer is no. He's like, Did I lose you in a bad business deal? He he's asking, you know, in those days, oftentimes, if you owed someone money everything you had was susceptible to, to them. They could come and take what was yours. And unfortunately, in those days, there were times that servants, uh, it was a different type of situation, but there were even servants in households or children that would often be at times taken from families because there was a debt owed. And, and God is saying, do I owe someone a debt, right? Like, do you see me that way? Because the Israelites were thinking like, What's going on? Why have we been? Why are we the servants of others right now? And God's making clear that it was because of their own choices, it was because of their own actions and their own decisions that they were they were in that situation. It's kind of ridiculous, to be honest, what the Israelites were thinking. Uh, it reminds me of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we'll see a little more imagery, I think, that takes us back to Genesis three uh, in just a moment, but. Remember Adam, right, when, uh, when God questions him about his sin, Adam says, well, uh, the, the woman you gave me, right, she's the one who, who caused me to sin, right, and, and he begins blaming, um, really blaming God, right, saying, well, this gift of a woman that you gave me, like, th- that was uh, ludicrous, and so here we see the Israelites who God has loved and been their father, been their, uh, been their God. Through the, through the centuries, and yet here they are, feeling abandoned, and feeling like God had left them. When unfortunately it was their sin. Right. Uh, another picture that we see of this in the in the the Bible is the book of Hosea. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Hosea. If you haven't ever read it, uh, I recommend it. It is uh, it's a, it's crazy and it's awesome at the same time. Um, It's the story of God telling his prophet, his man, Hosea, to go and take a wife who was a a prostitute. He says, go and take this adulterous woman to be your wife and marry her and then love her faithfully. And so Hosea becomes a picture of God towards us, his people, as we are an adulterous people. We are a people who run to other lovers. We run to other gods, to other idols. And yet, what we see in Hosea is that he goes back and even purchases back his own wife from others that she had um, been adulterous with. And so th- there's an intense love there that really puts all of, the, uh, all of the love originates with God. Any love we have for God, we have for him because he first loved us. The Bible tells us that in the New Testament. And so Hosea is uh, really this, Perfect uh, illustration as we begin to ask ourselves the question: Will you recognize your sin, right? Because Hosea's wife, her name was Gomer, which also a little bit of a funny name. I don't know any Gomers. I hope that none of you are Gomer. I hope none of you have the mother a mother named Gomer. Uh, I, m- I mean, no offense, but to me, a little bit of a funny name. Um, Hosea's wife, Gomer, uh, at times was, you know, in some ways resentful or trying to blame Hosea. There were, there were times that she acted like this. And so God is asking us, will we recognize our sin? Will we recognize that he is perfect, that he is loving, he is good. And whatever scrape we find ourselves in, he hasn't abandoned us. And we're not there because, uh, because he has abandoned us in some way and left us to our own devices. And as God uh, addresses these feelings of abandonment, Um, Yeah, see, I'm already forgetting (laughs) to click. There, the story of Hosea. As God's addressing these feelings uh, of abandonment, um, we see as well in verse two, this picture uh, of Genesis three. Again, I mentioned Genesis earlier, um, but here when God asked that question, he says, um, he says, why when I came, was there no one? right? Why was there no one? And then in Genesis 3, we see uh, where God comes and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And he says, where are you? That's one of the first questions. I think it might be the first question we see God ask in all of scripture is when he's in the habit of meeting with Adam and Eve in the the cool of the day. um, And so he comes to spend time with his creation and they're hiding. And of course, God knows where they are. He's God. He created the bush they're hiding in. Um, But he says, where are you? Because he wants them to stop and think, where am I right now? What's going on? Why am I here in this situation? And And he says to them, what is it that you've done? God's questions are reminding his people that he did not abandon them. They abandoned him. And he wants them to remember their sin, that they had abandoned their God. So in verses 2 and 3, God through Isaiah points his people to their past because he also wants them to remember how he had already redeemed them. So we see this imagery uh, where he starts to talk about creation. He's the God of creation, right? He he creates uh, everything. He created everything out of nothing. And so when God asks the question in verse 2, is my hand short that I can't redeem? He's saying, am I too weak to, to save you in this situation? The answer, again, of course, is no. But he reminds them, he points them back to imagery that would, in their minds, bring back the Exodus and, and their story of, of being rescued out of slavery in Egypt. Verse 2, he says that he dries up the sea, makes the rivers a desert. And so in Exodus 14, we see a picture of God parting the Red Sea, right? And he drying it up, so to speak, so that they could walk across and be saved from uh, the Egyptians who were following them. And then he he says as well, the fish stink for lack of water. They die of thirst. And then in Exodus 7, what we see is that God turned the Nile River to blood as a plague on the Egyptians. And when he did that, the fish died and they stank. And then God says in in this chapter of Isaiah, he he said, I clothe the heavens with blackness. And Exodus 10, as well, in that same story of God rescuing his people from the Egyptians, we see that he visited Egypt with darkness, but he gave light to his people. And so God has the ability to, uh, to redeem his people. He has the ability to command creation to do what it is that he wants. He had redeemed them, and he questions them because he wants them to remember what he had done, and who he is. God had instructed his people and they had chosen to neglect his ways. When God came to them, there was no one. When he called, there was no one to answer. But in just a moment, we will see that there is one who will answer that call. There is one who will respond to God coming and God calling. So we see a shift here in verses three and four. Verse 4 begins the third of four songs that, like I mentioned earlier, in the book of Isaiah, the servant songs. These are prophetic passages that give hope to God's people in the midst of their struggle. And even before the struggle that is to come for his people, he's providing them hope. He's giving them, he's pointing them towards his Messiah. And what we see here is a pre-incarnate Jesus speaking in first person. So the the language that we see in verses 4 through 9 is really Jesus speaking to us uh, in in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. And he tells us uh, about his relationship with God the Father and how he will bear the burden of our guilt and put an end to our sin and our shame. But that's why it's important that he wants us to recognize our sin first. Unless we're willing to see our sin and know that we have failed God, then the salvation he offers is... From what, right? What what are you saving us from? If we don't understand that we're separated from God because of our sin, then we don't feel a need for salvation. We don't feel a need to be rescued in some way. And so God wants to remind his people that he has been their redeemer. And so not only will you recognize your sin, but another question that we're asked in this passage is, will you remember your redeemer? God's saying, hey, don't forget all that I've done for you. Verses four through nine. Let me read that to us so I can find it here. Verse four, it says, "'The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, "'that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. "'Morning by morning he awakens. "'He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught.'" The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? And again, another question with the understood answer of no one, right? A, a negative response is, is expected and understood in that question. Who will declare me guilty? Because again, this is Jesus. Verses 2 and 3, if uh, the, the verses preceding these, God has to remind his people of the redemption that he's already brought them. And he he asks, as a part of that, is my hand shortened that I cannot redeem? Well, of course not. His hand is not shortened. He does not lack the resources needed to redeem. And we see in those verses as well that he creates the resources that are needed to redeem. And then in verses four through nine, this prophetic song about Jesus, there's a darker tone there. We see some language that's uh, uncomfortable when we really let it sink in. This is prophecy about how Jesus will be spat upon. He'll he'll be disgraced, uh, or they attempt to disgrace him. They they attempt to put him to shame. It says they pull out his beard. They strike him. And so I think it's important for us to not just remember the redemption that God has provided. And so as he talks to the Israelites He's looking back to the Exodus, but now we also see this picture of the Messiah to come. And for us, we look back on that because Jesus has come, right? And he's experienced this. When Isaiah was written, Jesus had not yet lived. He had not yet walked through this, but this is a prophecy telling us what he's going to, to do on our behalf and what he will experience on our behalf. And so we need to remember who Jesus is because our fight uh, in this life against sin, against Feelings of abandonment and things like that always should always point us back to the one who saves us. Should always point us back to the one who redeems us. Verse two says, why when I came was there no one? Why when I called was there no one to answer? But verse four through nine tells us that unlike the guilty silence of God's people who, who couldn't say anything, who couldn't give an answer, the servant Jesus is responsive to God's word. So Jesus is the one. When he says, why was there no one? To answer, why was there no one when I came? Jesus is the one. And so we're gonna look at ways that Jesus is the one. In verse four, we see that he's the one who listens. He says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Verse five, Jesus is the one who learns. The Lord God has opened my ear. This is a fascinating idea to me. Um, I'm sorry, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, I turned not backwards. That idea of opening his ear, meaning he didn't just listen, but he absorbed it. He took it in and, and, and he obeyed it, he heard it. The idea of Jesus being God but then learning something, right? And so we see this, in uh, there's a a fascinating idea, uh, the thought, the truth that Jesus was both God and man at the same time. And in his humanity, he had ears and he had a mouth so that he could hear and he could learn and he could teach. And he tells us, Jesus himself tells us, that he only teaches what the Father gives him to teach. He only speaks what the Father tells him. And so here's Jesus, unlike the Israelites, being one who learns. Also in verse 5, he's the one who doesn't rebel. Then in verse 6, he's the one who obeys at great cost. He gave his life, he dealt with the mockery of his own creation for our sake. And then verses 7 through 9, he's the one who rests in faith. And I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, but he's all the things that the Israelites weren't. They were not listening. They were not learning from their mistakes, right? They had, they'd repeated these same things over and over again, especially in the wandering in the wilderness. And then as they come into the promised land and uh, and they continue to, to make the mistakes and not listen, not learn. So they rebel. And then they disobey also at great cost. Rather than obeying at great cost, they disobey at great cost. And that's what's found them where they are now, feeling abandoned by God. They were not, but they felt that way. And they were not resting in the faith uh, of who God is and who their father was and is. There's, um, There's a... It's a booklet. What's what I'm looking for? It was, I think it was a sermon at one point by a Scottish pastor named Thomas Chalmers. I was talking about it this past week uh, at the conference we were at, but I'm reminded as we think about this idea of recognizing and remembering our Redeemer, I'm reminded of this, this sermon of, of Thomas Chalmers that was written like a couple hundred years ago. Um, it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And it really helped me when I read it to kind of set off some new things in my mind about ways to, to think about God and to understand my relationship with Him because as a good uh, Christian brought up in church, I was very, um, I knew how to keep the, I knew how to, to obey the rules, right? I knew how, or at least I knew how to appear like I was obeying and being a good kid, right? I knew how to play that game, I knew how to say the right thing and do the right thing, to look the right way, uh, and be the, be the kid that everybody thought, oh, he's such a wonderful little child, right? Of course, those closest to me, they saw through it, they knew better, but I knew how to play that game as a kid. And so as I grew up, I began, because of my relationship with Jesus, having this desire to, to stop sinning. I had this desire to stop being kind of one, one way at school with my with my friends in another way at church, right? Or around my family or church people. I, I, I had a desire to stop being that way. It gets tiring, by the way. If, you, if you've if you ever lived that way, maybe you still live that way at times. Um, we're all prone to it. Um, but this sermon by this pastor helped me to understand the idea that my job isn't to, to get all of the dirt and sin uh, and muck out of my life, but God desires to fill me with Jesus. And like a like a like a a container, a glass, you know, picture a glass bowl with something in it that you don't necessarily want in there. As you fill that with Christ, everything else kind of gets expelled from from that bowl. And, and before long, as you keep filling it with that clear water, that in theory, right, I know you're already thinking like, you've never washed my dishes, it's got the eggs caked on, right? Uh, but the idea is, as Jesus comes in, that drives out the sin, that drives out the iniquity, that drives out the, um, the, the negative things in my life that, that are built up. And so instead of working hard to clean out the bowl first, if we fill it with Jesus, that will expel. And so as we fall in love with Christ and remember our Redeemer and fix our eyes on Him, the book of Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And as we do that, He guides us around and over and through the obstacles of life. It's one of my favorite passages, Hebrews chapter 12. If you're not familiar with it, write it down. Go look it up this week. Um, but it's it's a beautiful picture of us fixing our eyes and remembering who Jesus is. It's so hard when we stop and look at the obstacles. There's uh, the, the great theologian, Vince Lombardi. Um, that's a very American joke because he is an NFL coach and legend. Uh, the, the Super Bowl trophy is named after this guy, um, so he's not really a theologian, but he did say obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off the goal, all right? And I believe that oftentimes we take our eyes off of Jesus. We put them on the sin around us. We put them on the temptation. We put them on uh, our own failings. And we begin to feel abandoned by God. We begin to feel defeated. But if we'll fix our eyes on him, he will fill us. And he will drive out those things and make us more like uh, himself. So lastly today, I want us to consider this question. Will you rely on Him? So first of all, will you recognize your sin? Secondly, will you remember your Redeemer? But third, will you rely on Him? Isaiah 50 verses 10 and 11 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of His servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. But now, all you who light fires and provide, them, provide yourselves with flaming torches, go, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you've set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. It's not good news, is it? <laughs> that's that's kind of scary. It, it, it ends, verse 11, uh, the chapter ends on that note of like, listen, I, 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 I will allow you to run from me, right? He doesn't want us to. He's always there when we're ready to recognize him and admit our sin and focus on our redeemer. Do you know, um, maybe a few of you are DIYers. Di- di- d- does that translate here, DIY? Do-it-yourself, right? The do-it-yourselfers. I don't know if you uh, if you know any of those, um, the person who says, you know, give me the right equipment and a little instructional video on YouTube, and I can do anything, right? That, that person, I'm not that person. My wife will give a hearty amen to that. Uh, I can change a light fixture, you know, every now and then. But our faith is not a DIY project. And oftentimes, the world tells us that that's what religion is. That's what faith is, is working on yourself, trying to make yourself better. And yet, what sets Christianity apart from every other religion is the fact that we don't do it ourselves. It's not about what we do. It's about what he's already done for us. So our faith is not a DIY project. Verse 11 says, the result will be eternal torment. All right? Jesus, or or God in this passage through Isaiah, this last verse says, all you who light your fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go. Walk in the light of your fires and your torches, you've set ablaze. But this is what you're gonna get you're going to get eternal torment. This isn't, um, again, this isn't as easy as changing a light bulb or a light fixture. It's not what we're talking about. This is more akin to do-it-yourself spinal surgery. Like, I don't don't know if, you know, like, I I, I don't think any of us would want to take that on um, because we understand just how ludicrous that is. And really thinking that we can fix ourselves outside of Jesus, outside of Him fixing us for us, And that goes against human nature. We want to do, we want to be the ones that get the credit and the glory when we achieve something. But you simply cannot do it yourself. So will you rely on him? Will you trust in Jesus and wholly lean on his name? So for the Christian here today, I want to give you three quick points uh, of application. All right? Hopefully... There we go. One, we should recognize our tendency to wander from God by refusing to obey his word. We have to, that's part of what missional communities are about, part of why we gather together as believers on a regular basis, because we want to remember that we trust in God. We don't even trust in each other, right? We can and hopefully can trust each other to an extent, but I don't look to anyone in this room for my salvation, so we have to recognize our tendency to wander from God, to look to others, to look to ourselves, to stand in awe of the astonishing humility and obedience of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. That I need to remind myself sometimes just to stop and think about how amazing it is what Jesus did for us. I think, um, I haven't watched it in years, but when the, uh, a movie called The Passion of the Christ came out years and years ago, I know it was at times difficult for some people to watch that. Because it was pretty brutal, right? I think it had an R rating, uh, at least in the States, um, because of the violence that's there. But it it made people stop and think about the fact that crucifixion was not uh, a a humane, you know, little like peacefully slip into, (laughs) into eternity kind of death. It was painful, it was horrific. And so for us to look at the love that Jesus had for us in his willingness to do that, I think goes a long way in helping us want to grow in our relationship with him, want to to set aside sin. And, And like Hebrews 12 says, to lay aside the sin and weight which so easily entangles us and run with perseverance this race that God has for us. We do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then third, we must seek to imitate his daily pattern of listening to his father through time and prayer and in the Bible. That's why it's uh, Jesus, we see in this servant song, Jesus talks about morning by morning, God feeding him, God teaching him, God, uh, and when I say feeding, I mean spiritually, right? Uh, God uh, teaching him, speaking to him so that he then has uh, the truth to speak to us. And again, I know there's a mystery there because he's God, um, but God teaches God so that God can save us, all right? For those of you who have not yet trusted in Jesus to redeem you, verse 10 and 11 present us with a fork in the road. Verse 10 is for those of us who, uh, for those who choose to, to trust and rely in Jesus. Verse 11 uh, is that picture of, your, it's, your, it's your other choice, it's your other road that you can take, but it leads to eternal separation from God. And this fork in the road does bring us face to face with the exclusivity of Christ, it does bring us face-to-face with that idea. And I know it's so often hard for people when it comes to Christianity to say, well, you know, that idea of of Jesus being the only way to heaven, I I struggle with that, right? Because I know a lot of really nice people who think other things or who don't know Jesus. And there's really no way to eternity with, with, with God outside of Jesus. It is exclusive. But, I once heard it put this way and it's stuck with me through the years. It is the most inclusive exclusivity ever, all right? Yes, Jesus is the only way. But the beauty of Christianity is that anyone can put their trust in Jesus. It doesn't matter your religious background, your social class, your educational history. It doesn't matter what team you pull for. It doesn't matter how much money you have. There are no prequalifications for faith in Christ. The cross is available to you. And one of the ways we remember to rely on the Redeemer is by taking the Lord's Supper together. We do this, I think, every week here. I can't think of a Sunday I've been here that we didn't do this together. Because it is a way of remembering. There's such an importance to remembering. Communion is a representation of Christ's body broken for us and His blood shed for us. The Lord's Supper is one way that we can consider this fork in the road. We are told in Scripture to consider the condition of our hearts before we partake. Don't don't do this as a, a, a ritualistic attempt to fix ourselves. That's not why we do it. We do it as an observance. We do it to remember. Jesus himself says, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And what a blessing we have in the Lord's Supper to consistently and communally remember who He is and what He's done for us. So I want to pray for us. Uh, under your seat, you should have uh, the elements there. Just um, you can take that bread that represents the broken body of Christ, that little wafer, and uh, and the juice represents God's blood that was shed for us. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then um, I believe we can sing as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But I want you to... Um, don't just peel it open and 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 eat the wafer and drink the juice. Take a moment. I will again I'll pray for us, but then I want you to pray for yourselves as well. And and think about where you're standing with God. Maybe maybe you've done this many times, but today would be the day that you do it because of what it reminds you of. If, you know, we, we do say that this is for believers. Otherwise, it's just a, a little bit of a stale wafer and a little tiny bit of juice that doesn't quench your thirst, right? Um, but it, it only becomes special to us when we have faith in Christ. And so if your faith isn't in Jesus, um, if if you're not uh, trusting in him for your salvation, but you want to and you know, you understand that he's calling you, he's tugging at your heart, then this can be the day that you take The Lord's Supper, you take communion for the first time in a genuine way. We invite you to do that. So I'll pray and then we'll continue an attitude of prayer. Lord, we thank you, God. We thank you that you do not leave us in our sin. You do not expect us to fix ourselves. We're so grateful, Lord, for Jesus. We're so grateful for the life that he lived perfectly and the death that he died in order to redeem us, in order to purchase us back from the sin that we chose. So Lord, today, would you take this time as we observe communion to remind us in a deeper way. God, would you protect those of us who walk flippantly into a time like this. God, I know I'm guilty of it. But Lord, speak to our hearts today. What questions would you ask us, Lord? What question would you ask me right now to remind me of of my past and to help me remember my Redeemer? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.